Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week a question and answer session. I really had a lot of fun recording this and getting the questions from you all, so I think I'm just going to keep this ball rolling. Go to 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com or contact me in any of the other ways that I list at the end of this podcast in order to ask me questions that I will answer in future episodes. The first question that I'm answering this week comes from Allie, last name withheld. Her question deals with the origins of fascism. Allie asks, what is the origin of the word fascism? This question gets at the heart of the origins of fascism itself. Fascism, originally, the concept and the name, come from Italy. Specifically, they come from the Italian post-war period and from the tumult of the left wing in that country after the sort of disaster that Italy experienced during World War I. The word itself, fascism, comes from an Italian concept that comes from Roman history. Specifically, fascism is named after a symbol of Roman authority called the fasces, it's a bundle of sticks that are lashed around a central axe. You know, they're, so, they're sort of like lashed around the, the haft or the, 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 the handle of the axe, right? But this came to be a metaphor in modern Italian politics. Instead of just being a, a symbol of authority, of Roman authority, which you can see throughout the world, actually, for example, the United States House of Representatives has fasces depicted in it. That's not because of fascism. It's just because of neo-Roman architecture. So this came to be a metaphor for people working together. It came to be a metaphor for essentially populism, for popular power, popular control, popular representation. This is why Mussolini chose it as the name for his new popular movement. And by popular, I mean both that people liked it, but also more specifically that lots of people were in it, right? That's what Mussolini wanted. He wanted a movement of people. This is part of the reason, and it's, you know, it it's makes sense that fascism is so often associated with the concept of populism. It's because it is a popular movement. Lots of people are in it. Afterwards, fascism came to be entirely divorced from this particular object. You know, the most common symbol of fascism today is the Nazi swastika and not the Italian fascis. However, you see a lot of fascist groups in the United States using the Italian fascists as their symbol in order to prevent people from seeing them as fascists, right? Because people don't know what this is. For example, the Patriot Front uses a fascist as their symbol as opposed to a swastika in order to prevent people from thinking about them as being fascists, right? Our next question comes from Matt, last name withheld. This question deals with the origins of racist skinheads. Specifically, Matt was questioning why it is that skinhead culture and skinhead aesthetics came to be associated with racism when originally they had nothing to do with racism, at least not particularly. My answer is going to be dealing primarily with the United Kingdom, where the fascist skinhead subculture emerged, and also where the original skinhead subculture emerged. It's not dealing particularly with skinhead subcultures in other places where that's prominent, for example, the United States and Germany. So skinhead subcultures emerged in the United Kingdom in the 1960s. This is alongside the emergence of basically most other youth subcultures. Prior to World War II, there weren't really youth subcultures per se, at least not mass youth subcultures. This is partly because young people got more spending money and also because of the increasing prevalence of universal educational systems. This meant that young people were actually set apart from the working world for the first time really in mass in the Western world 
after World War II. So this means that in the 1960s, we can get youth subcultures of teenagers who have spending money, who live all together, and who know a bunch of other young people who are not necessarily working right now because they are in middle school, high school, or even college. Skinhead subcultures emerged from an earlier set of subcultures called mod subcultures. Skinheads were a working class reaction to mainstream everyday life, so they, they overemphasized their working class origins by wearing working clothes out all the time, right? So they wear big work boots, they wear suspenders, they wear work pants like big jeans, they wear, you know, big hefty flannel shirts, right? These are working men's clothes. They cut their hair close to their head, partly because that's what they would need to do if they were going to be working in a mill or in a factory. And also specifically, all of this fashion is in reaction to the more prominent and popular subculture, hippie subcultures, right? Which are not identified with the working class, but instead with wealthier people, with middle-class people and with wealthy people who can afford to go to college, right? Now there's a bewildering taxonomy of skinhead subcultures and smaller groups of skinheads and like sub 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 versions of skinhead subcultures like suede heads and I don't know we're not going to get into that right now the point is that skinhead subcultures came to prominence in the United Kingdom in this time in the mid and late 1960s now this was also at the same time that there was the some of the biggest waves of migration of people of color from former british colonies to Britain itself. And this specifically brought a lot of people from the West Indies, as they called them then. In Britain, this means the Caribbean, specifically from former British colonies, such as Jamaica. Mass immigration from Jamaica brought Jamaican food, it brought Jamaican aesthetics, it brought Jamaican culture, it brought Jamaican music, in addition to, of course, Jamaican people. Now, skinheads, like a lot of other British youths, really latched on to specifically Jamaican music. And this includes ska, or at least original 1960s ska, which was sort of more of like swing, dance, jazz type of music. And also reggae prior to the basic takeover of reggae music and reggae cultures by black nationalism and Rastafarianism. So this form of reggae is a Jamaican music. It is kind of a dance music. It's fun. It's exciting. It's perfect for a youth subculture in the 1960s. Now, this meant that skinhead cultures were directly connected with a group of people of color, which meant that original skinhead culture in the 1960s wasn't necessarily anti-racist, but it was at least accepting of people who were not white. There were a large presence of people who weren't white in skinhead spaces and skinhead cultures, and it had nothing to do with racism per se. Now, that doesn't mean that skinheads weren't racist. They were. Skinheads were racist in the way that, you know, everyday people are. And a lot of them were sort of like working class nationalists or British pride types, Again, not explicitly racist, but you can see how the fodder of racism is there. That eventually grows into the 1970s, partly because of economic changes in Britain and also partly because of successful right-wing organizing. The economic changes really hurt the working class in England and Scotland and also just in the rest of the world as the post-war economic consensus that assumed, that believed that uh, empowering and improving the lives of working class people would improve and empower the economy as a whole, that 
ceased to be the common sense in the 1970s, and so working-class people's lives were immiserated. They got a lot worse. This meant that they were the perfect site for right-wing political organizing. This right-wing political organizing was carried out by the British National Party, by various other groups, and also by explicitly cultural groups, such as Rock Against Communism, which was a, an earnest effort by right-wing British nationalists to co-op the, the music scene that, that skinheads found themselves in, that, that skinheads had created, to co-opt that scene in order to produce a right-wing subculture. And they did this very, very successfully. This also, this move towards right-wing organizing and also this economic change, also coincided with the rise of South Asian immigration to the United Kingdom and a rise of violence against people of South Asian descent. These attacks were largely carried out by working-class white British youths, many of whom were themselves members of the skinhead subculture. And this was the sort of final nail in the coffin here. It meant that a lot of people who were anti-racist or who at least weren't explicitly racist essentially started to divorce themselves from the skinhead subculture and to eliminate their their association with it, you know, to, to, to start to dress a little bit differently in order to avoid being seen as racists. My next question comes from Tom and Madge, last name withheld. Their question deals with Donald Trump. Specifically, the question is something that's on the minds of a lot of people. Is Donald Trump building a fascist movement? Now, I'm going to address this question more in further episodes of the Q&A, I'm very sure. But the short answer is, honestly, maybe. Donald Trump's political movements this time are going to be a lot worse than they were last time. He's a much savvier political operator, and he is much more connected with the right wing, specifically due to his experiences with the January 6th attempted coup. The real question is, do any of Donald Trump's political moves require the extreme right wing in order for him to be able to do what he's trying to do? And I think that currently the answer is no, right? Most of Donald Trump's plans deal with, you know, messing around with the court system and trying to get particular laws passed and, you know, making weird legal arguments about how the executive system works or something like that. None of that is essentially illegal, right? And most of it, even if it is like sort of quasi-legal, is quasi-legal in the sense that Jim Crow was legal that segregation was illegal, that blocking, you know, the votes of people of color of any race was illegal, right? Most of what he's trying to do is sort of more like rolling back the clock to a pre-democratic early 20th century kind of United States. And that's probably going to be legal. He doesn't need a mass group of right-wing thugs enforcing his ideology in the street in order to do that. He can probably just get Congress to pass some laws, right? So, Unless he needs a mass movement of the extreme right wing, not exactly fascism. It's definitely anti-democratic. Maybe a better word would be authoritarian. Now, this isn't to say that he isn't going to need right wing thugs. He's definitely going to need right wing thugs on his side, basically because there are going to be counter protests to whatever it is that he does. But the question is, are they going to be big enough, integral enough to his plan to demand a real seat at the power table? when it comes to his administration, and my guess is probably no, although that remains to be seen. Our last question this week comes from Caleb, last name withheld, and it's a very good and interesting question. Caleb notes that most of the time when people talk about fascism and anti-Semitism, they argue that anti-Semitism is a sort of intellectual core to fascism, that fascism requires anti-Semitism in order to ideologically function. 
Caleb asks if this is really necessarily the case, and especially how does fascism work in countries and places where there aren't a lot of Jewish people, you know, where Jewish people cannot really fulfill this structural scapegoat role. Now, the answer is big. Uh, Anti-Semitism is often presented as the heart of fascism. Caleb is right. It's a means by which fascists can have a critique of capitalism without having to propose radical changes to the economy. Fascists do often propose radical changes to the economy, but they've basically never actually followed through, right? The origins of this perspective, that Jewish people are sort of like the beating heart of the problem with modern life and with capitalism, this this is what fascists believe, the origins of this perspective come from Europe, where Judaism was historically associated not just with uh, the spiritual loss of community purity, you know, the, the blood libel myth, for example, about Jewish people killing Jesus Christ, but also with finance capital as being the origins of the problems of capitalism because of the jobs that Jewish people were relegated to practicing, lending, trading, working in cities, etc. Thus, the opposition to Jewish people and also to Judaism was a way for fascists to critique what they described as, you know, sort of like, quote-unquote, the the loss of an organized, organic, traditional society via form of internal corruption. It was also a way to oppose what fascists and many people described as the excesses of capitalism. This is why fascist propaganda was successful, because it was pointing out real problems that real people had with how capitalism worked. Jewish, quote-unquote, influence was also used to explain how the supposedly superior race of whatever locals are present in the place that is dealing with this wave of anti-Semitism, it was used to explain why this supposedly superior race of locals is nevertheless still downtrodden, right? They need this secretive cabal of Jewish people in order to suppress them. So Caleb's question is, what about in places where Judaism isn't as prevalent, like in Latin America, for example? Are Jewish people still the scapegoat? Are other people still the scapegoat? Does fascism need this scapegoating ideology, this secret language, right? The answer is that in the Western world, fascists, even in places without major Jewish populations, still turn to Judaism as the scapegoat anyway. This was, for example, the case in colonial and modern Latin America, even in places without major Jewish populations. Jewish people were still blamed for the quote-unquote blood libel. They were still blamed as the origins of all of the problems within capitalism. And of course, I would note that there are actually quite a lot of Jewish people who live in Latin America, particularly in Argentina and also in Brazil. And these are countries that have dealt with a large amount of anti-Semitic hate and violence. So the right-wing perspective of anti-Semitism is really important in the Western world. And this is the case whether or not there is a substantial Jewish population in the place in question. For example, there weren't a lot of Jewish people, or at least not a a substantial amount of Jewish people, in the United States prior to the 20th century. However, anti-Semitism remained the core of right-wing ideology there. And this was because they still thought about the world in this European sense. And so, like, for example, let's take a, a, a country in Latin America that doesn't have a substantial Jewish population, like, for example, Chile. Or at least they didn't in the 19th and early 20th centuries, right? And so when they talked about the problems that their country was facing or the right-wing perspective that they wanted to advocate for, and they saw that their country was being oppressed by some outside forces, the, the outside force that they might name might be the United Kingdom. It might be the British Empire. But who would they say is in control of the British Empire? Well, they would say Jewish people. This is also the case in the right wing today when they identify maybe the United States as being the oppressor of their national home. 
Who do they say is in control of the United States? Well, they say Jewish people. Other screens are also possible. For example, the World Bank uh, is often used as an example of like this institution that's controlled by Jewish people that oppresses, you know, whatever supposed national whole, the, you know, supposed organic natural group, right? However, this doesn't mean that Jewish people are always the scapegoat of the extreme right wing. There are other cases, specifically outside of the Western world, in which a different locally defined permanent outsider is associated with finance capitalism and is thus the scapegoat of the extreme right wing. One perfect example would be the case of Indonesia, where for centuries, ethnic Chinese people, ethnic Chinese merchants, and ethnic Chinese business people were blamed for the problems of capitalism and for stealing jobs and, you know, for like destroying the national economy and blah, 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 right? This came to a head in the mid-20th century as the right wing in Indonesia used this, this, this racist ideology to justify a genocide against ethnic Chinese people who, much like Jewish people, were also always identified with communism. Because in the right wing's mind, finance capital and communism are the same thing, right? Because they link that through this particular stereotype. If you're interested in this story of the massacre of ethnic Chinese people, then you should check out Vincent Bevins's The Jakarta Method, an excellent book about this massacre and its reverberations throughout the Western world. If you want to learn more about other ethnic groups that have occupied the same sort of social place as Jewish people, not just in terms of like their sociological demographic position in a society, but also in terms of how the right wing scapegoats them and how they are, you know, oppressed and hurt, then you should check out The Jewish Century by Yuri Sleskin, a professor at UC Berkeley. Specifically, check out chapter one, where he creates a term to define this particular type of person, you know, this particular ethnic group that is the permanent cosmopolitan outsider. He calls them Mercurians, specifically related to the Roman god of commerce. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Skip my Patreon and go donate to Medicine Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, The Red Cross, The Red Crescent. I've been really enjoying doing this question and answer thing. So please send in more questions to me. Send in more comments to me at 15minutesoffascism at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right and fascism15. And I'm on Blue Sky at 15-M-I-N-S-O-F. F-A-S-C, 15 Men's of Fash. Thanks very much, and I will talk to you Thursday. Thursday.